Hello, this is Heartstock Radio, and I am your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Dr. Luke Haverhals. In just a moment, he's going to be with us, and we're going to find out all about what he is up to. I'd also like to remind everybody that you can find us on Facebook. You can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. And in just a moment, Dr. Haberhals will be with us. Uh, this is Heartstock. Thanks so much for listening. As I went walking and ripping the highway, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Clark Grant is in the studio. Today, our guest on Heartstock is Dr. Luke Haverhals, and he is the founder and CEO of Natural Fiber Welding Incorporated. Hello, Dr. Haverhals. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Carol, for uh, having me on the show. Oh, thank you for being our guest. Now, would you prefer that I call you Dr. or Luke? You just call me Luke. That works absolutely fine. Fantastic. So let's begin at the beginning. And maybe if you could just give our listeners a brief intro as to what Natural Fiber Welding Incorporated is. Sure. So natural fiber welding is working on this problem that humanity has, which is that we're over-dependent on plastic. And that, that over-dependency on plastic means we pollute from an emissions perspective, from an extracting petroleum perspective. It also means that we pollute when our garments and plastic things end up in the environment, either, well, usually unintentionally. And instead, what natural fiber welding is doing is pioneering new materials that are made from plants that are low carbon footprint, that are part of the circle of life, and that only use nutrients. So we think replacing petrochemicals with nutrients is the way to go. And we've talked about this briefly a little bit before on the show, but I'm hoping that we can discuss this a little bit further before we we kind of move on here, the whole concept that everybody's used to the idea that, hey, you shouldn't be using plastic bottles if you're purchasing water, maybe five bottles a day. Why not uh, substitute that for uh, a reusable water bottle? But a lot of us really are not even aware of the fact that our clothing is also a contributor to this mass problem that we seem to be having of plastics pollution. How is it that our clothing is part of the plastic problem? Yeah, so in a typical year, uh, you know, COVID makes 2020 a little bit different. But um, in a a normal year, uh, at this point in history, humans use about 100 billion pounds of polyester every year for, for just textiles, for clothes. So about something like two-thirds of the tonnage of all the textiles in the world is polyester. And so, and, and there's, you know, a variety of reasons for that, but one of the outcomes is that when you wash your clothes or even when you wear your clothes, there's microfiber shedding into your house, into the water, et cetera. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a complicated and big problem. 
So let's talk about you for a moment, Luke. And how is it that you ended up on this journey working on this huge problem that society is really uh, desperately needing to solve at this point? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I could say that my journey starts, you know, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. And so I was exposed to life processes and, and what goes on on a small family farm very early and very curious about how the world works and where things come from, where they go to. And then I grew up a little bit and ended up, uh, it's, I don't know how much into the story we should go, but I, I could tell you a quick aside, which is I had to make a decision at one point in my life about should I try to pursue a pro baseball career or should I become a, you know, invest in my mind a little bit further and go to grad school. And fortunately, my father uh, helped me make the right decision, which was to invest in my brain and and uh, doing some things in chemistry, which was an, an interest of mine. And so after I got my PhD in chemistry, I I went to the U.S. Naval Academy to be a professor of chemistry and uh, was very fortunate to be part of a group and a research project that was looking into what what can you do to use natural materials? And, and it's well accepted and understood that natural materials are the highest performing, the most circular, the lowest, lowest carbon footprint when they're grown regeneratively. What if you could take all those materials and learn how to mold and shape them in ways that are akin to what we do with plastics? If you could do that, you could have higher performing materials, lower impact, uh, better sustainability, circularity, et cetera, all at the same time. And so, uh, I was fortunate to do that in the Naval Academy for, for a number of years. And then my, uh, my wife and I had three beautiful little daughters and we wanted to move back to the Midwest to be closer to where the, the families are. Uh, and so I landed in Peoria and, you know, I took this idea with me and at Bradley university started, you know, continuing my academic career, but I had this sort of gnawing thought in the back of my head that this, this discovery I'd made at the Naval Academy really needed to be commercialized. So in 2015, I did what a lot of people do, which is very naively started a company, not really realizing how much work and what a long journey would be, but started a company to commercialize the technology. So here we are in 2020 talking about it. So I feel like we really need to kind of round this out with a little discussion about why. Why should we all be concerned and why is there all of this uproar um, from an environmental standpoint about plastics? Just what exactly is this doing in, in the way of harm or is it, you know, kind of inert? once it breaks down and gets into the environment. Yeah. So, so the first thing to consider with plastics is sort of where they come from. So there are now life cycle analyses that are in the world that say that by 2050, one sixth, um, actually a little bit more than one sixth of the global carbon footprint for humanity will be production of plastics. So most people, you know, when plastics were first invented, no one had YouTube and, and a lot of uh, different teachings out there, a lot of data that let people think about what happens when you scale that kind of a technology to, to billions of people on planet Earth. So the, 
the first consideration is the extractive nature of where plastics come from and also the, the amount of energy and the kind of processes, catalysts, and all kinds of things that have to be used and produced in order to make plastics. And then we can talk about the, the outbound where plastics go to. So um, plastics have often been talked about as being very recyclable. The problem is when you really dig into what makes the most sense to, to recycle plastic, you find that an awful lot of products in the world, like footwear is a good example, are mixtures of plastics, and those mixtures aren't easily separable. So there's not actually very much plastics. Milk, milk jugs and simple things that are one material can, can get recycled, albeit with a fairly high carbon footprint. But there's many, many materials in our lives that, especially textiles and things like that, that are complex. And so they're very difficult to recycle. And um, especially with unit economics, that, that outcompetes the virgin. And then, and then the other piece is that if plastics end, end up in the environment, they're not nutrients. They're not composed of nutrients. So nature doesn't really you know, know how to break those things down. Or if it does, they break down into things that are not always so good. There's you know, more of what we could talk about from a chemistry perspective, how there's plasticizers that act like endocrine disruptors. There's uh, the nature of how plastic breaks down when it's exposed to UV light into smaller and smaller smaller particles and how those particles can infiltrate into cells and, and do all sorts of things in both aquatic and on terrestrial sort of environments to life. And so those are, you know, people at this point in history, even in 2020, don't have the full data set. There are studies that show that crabs that are exposed to microfiber, for example, don't choose their shells correctly or as efficiently as they should or as they do when they're in a pristine environment. And so we don't have all the data, but there's a lot of growing concerns just about how plastics affects both the, the base of the food chain and then also how it might affect people when, you know, we're living in, in homes and things where we're breathing in these fibers and, and they can potentially, you know, have unintended consequences in terms of your long-term health outcomes. Yeah, and I know that um, I was just listening on NPR recently and they did a, a really great piece on investigating the whole likelihood and probability of recycling ever working. And what can you share with us about the, the you know, why, why can we not just recycle ourselves out of the plastic problem? Yeah, the, the, there, there's a couple of things. Number one is economics. So when it's more expensive to recycle than it is to produce from, you know, produce a virgin material, then you've got a problem because what, what's the incentive for a company to lose money? doing recycling, right? And, and then when you look at why the recycling is more expensive, you, you realize that, that plastics, again, there are many, many materials, textiles being uh, like a, a case in point, many, many materials are mixtures. And when you, when you mix different kinds of plastics together or different materials together, like if you take a shoe, for example, you know, a shoe the kinds of materials that go into the sole and the midsole and the upper and the, and the laces and the eyelets for the laces, they're, they're often many different materials. And so you can't easily separate that into a, 
a set of waste streams that can be recycled. It costs a lot of money to do that. Uh, and, and in some cases, the technology is really not there. So while there's a lot of people talking about recycling plastics, you know, there's the, the reality is there's just there's not that many good technological solutions that work. There are people that are working on things like how do you digest plastics? But the issue there is, again, it, then, then all of a sudden you have carbon footprint. Um, when you really get into the into the technical weeds of how much energy and what you get back from those processes, you find that there's problems, especially again when you when you apply that to then 100 billion pounds of polyester, for example, produced just for textiles. So it's a combination of economics and how technology plays with economics. Yes, indeed. Now let's maybe touch upon how you went about deciding what materials, what raw materials you're going to use to find replacements and what products are you trying to replace? Are we talking bottles? Are we talking textiles, leather? Yeah, eventually everything, but we're we're starting in the textile world. So when you think about a problem as big as and complex as making plastics from petrochemicals, then kind of at the start, you have to think about if you're going to replace one thing with another, you don't want to uh, replace it with something that, that isn't more scalable or more economically beneficial or worse. You don't want to replace something that's not great for the environment with something that's terrible for the environment. And so we can, we can simply note a few things about when you go outside and you, you look around, you know, scientists have long noted how diverse nature is and how diverse plants are, um, that different plants produce different kinds of materials, that, that that production system, if you will, is is photosynthesis. So it's sequestration of, of carbon dioxide powered by sunlight. Uh, and, and it makes all these high-performance materials. And, and it does so at amazing scale um, in a way where there's no waste because, anyway, plants, when they, when they are grown, they can biodegrade and be regrown again, of course. Um, and we sort of all take that for granted that when, when I, as a chemist, look at the world, I note things like, you know, more new tonnage of plant matter will grow in a day on Earth than the combined tonnage of all the synthetic plastic things that people make in many years. And so plants are way more scalable than and petrochemicals and things that come from fossil resources. And they can be grown in regenerative ways that are way less extractive on the environment. And then the materials themselves are higher performing, uh, but, but plastics can do one trick that is very, very beneficial and why we have that industry, which is you can very fast and fast, efficient ways mold and shape plastic into various kinds of geometries. And those geometries are, useful for everything from filaments for textiles to flexible sheets for leather-like materials. And so when, when I founded Natural Fiber Welding, it was because of this core idea um, and discovery that I had at the Naval Academy, which is there actually are ways in which you can mold and shape that abundant natural plant materials that are, that are in the world. And you can do so efficiently, and, and you can then combine natural materials to, to be more than what can be grown. So there's a lot of people today who think that we need to grow 
you know, new materials or we should genetically modify organisms to make a new material. And there might be some niche applications for that, but when, when you stop and think about, you know, the solution has to be big enough to scale to everybody. It has to outscale the petrochemical industry. It needs to do so at new economics. That makes sense. The, the truth is the there's very few answers out there. The answer is plants. That's what we have. Um, and again, then what I would say is NFW's formation of the problem that, that the thing to do is not to try to grow some new exotic kind of plant or grow plants in a different way. Work with those people that regeneratively grow your food and work with how you take the waste products, the plant matter that's still high performance, but mold it and shape it into those things that become shoes, become car interiors, become your clothing, et cetera. If you can do that, that's just a fundamentally better system that, uh, anyway, makes the world a better place. We're going to dive more deeply into this with you, Luke. We're going to take a quick midway point break here, and we will be right back. This is Hardstock. Thanks for listening. Hardstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Clark Grant is in the studio. Today, we are speaking with the CEO and founder of Natural Fiber Welding Incorporated, Dr. Luke Haverhaus. Hi again, Luke. Hello. You know, it's fascinating to me that um, the solutions, the solutions have always been here, right? And we decided that we would would outsmart ourselves and exactly. um, <laughs> come up with something better, which, as it turns out, um, not not so much. So I would love to hear your journey, you know, how you decided what materials you were going to use. And I, I would imagine a lot of that had to do with what was abundant and uh, not already being used and what you were going to make with it specifically, you know, and where you are. I mean, there's so many, so many questions. Can you start with just that issue of, you know, how did you decide what you were going to use? Did you look at other companies that were already in, in the field? So when, when I started doing my research at the Naval Academy with Paul Truelove and and a number of folks, you know, we, we weren't worried about trying to necessarily just solve a problem with how do you recycle t-shirts. We were doing fundamental science that was sort of focused on what can the law of the universe enable us to do? What, what, what do the laws allow that we can do that are new and unique and, and can take advantage of, of these natural materials that are out there? And so then when you if I fast forward to starting a company, you know, with a company, you have to decide like what, what's our best shot at getting a product in market because, uh, you know, investors at the end of the day don't want to just fund science experiments. They want they want solutions that are going to work in the marketplace. And so um, it, it turns out that, at least in terms of where we started, we looked at the world and we said, oh, there's 100 billion pounds of 
cotton, or sorry, 100 billion pounds of polyester produced in the world. There's also 55 billion pounds of cotton that are grown in an, in an average year. And, and then we can note that the, the cotton, there's, there's an awful lot of waste cotton that's in the form of old T-shirts and old blue jeans and things like that that are in closets. And, and when you dig in and you discover why people don't recycle cotton today, it has to do with the, the length of fiber. And it turns out that, that uh, cotton, when you go to mechanically recycle it, which is by far from a carbon footprint perspective, the absolute best way that you can recycle you know, on old clothing is if you can do it mechanically. And yet the problem is when you try to do that to cotton, the fiber gets shorter. And so this process, this, this uh, idea that I had at the Naval Academy, we, we thought about it from the perspective, well, how do we apply that perhaps to all this short cotton that today gets thrown away or doesn't have any, any useful life to it because the cotton is too short? How do we make that fiber act like it's longer? And it turns out that our technology solves that problem at, at a fundamental level. And so that's where we started. We started with just the recognition that there's literally tens and hundreds of millions of pounds of waste cotton from previous years that are in our closet. And that's a resource. And then working on a technology solution that, that makes that short fiber act as if it's the long, you know, staple, a very expensive fiber. Uh, and then from there, we, we generalize the process to think about, like, how do we more generally mold and shape natural materials, you know, beyond waste cotton? And it turns out that when you look into the world, you find that there's an awful lot of leather-like material. So people have noted the issues with leather, but most people don't recognize that, the, you know, many people will, will say that they have an eco-leather, but that eco-leather or that vegan leather uh, is not really leather at all, of course. It's it's a petroleum-based uh, plastic. And so, and yet, the automotive industry is the single largest use case for those kinds of materials. Footwear is number two. There's all the furniture. You know, there's bags are kind of an afterthought in the leather and the leather-like industry um, in terms of their overall volumes of use. And And yet, those materials, they either come from... Well, an awful lot of them come from petrochemicals. And so if we could take things like waste cork powder, if we could take things, you know, that, that are crop residues and things like that and mold and shape those into flexible materials, then that would be a good solution for leather-like. So that was sort of place number two to go. And what natural fiber welding is doing right now is building this whole really an ecosystem of materials that are all based just like Nature is based, the food chain is based in a green plant. We're taking the same approach and we're building this ecosystem of species, if you will, of different materials that are mixtures, complex composites made only from nutrient natural inputs. And that's a really powerful thing because when you base yourself after nature, then that allows you to do what nature does, which is nature upcycles and recycles and downcycles and keeps it all in balance without waste. If we can develop our platform system to do similarly, then, then okay, we can start with waste cotton. We can extend ourselves into leather-like materials, but we can actually go beyond. You know, there's limitations, too, to what cotton can do. There's limitations to what leather and plastic leathers can do. NSW can make materials no one else can make, no one else can ever grow, because we can combine 
and, and make new combinations of things that were never, <laughs> the universe never thought of before, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And how about your funding? That's always the interesting thing, isn't it, with startups? Do you mind sharing yeah. at all with us about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's publicly discoverable that Ralph Lauren led a Series A investment in natural fiber welding uh, this summer. We'll be talking about a, a major headline um, other brand partner that's joining, um, or so I should say not that's joining, that already has joined. Um, we'll talk about that very early next year uh, in, the, in the footwear sort of side of things. And what we're doing, I guess, you know, well, if you say interesting, I'd say you spent as a startup, um, especially technical startup, you spend a lot of your time not actually thinking about how to make your technology better or hire smart people to execute scalable ideas. But you spend a lot of your time educating investors on why this technology matters. One of the reasons why we've, you know, we're very pleased to be working with Ralph Lauren, for example, is that they really, their people really just get what the future could be. And, you know, if, if you think about those brands that use natural materials today that are looking for innovations that give them an edge, you don't have to work near as hard to educate them on what a technology like natural fiber welding has um, can do. So when we talk about Claris performance fabrics, when we talk about Miram leather-like materials, here I was very fortunate to be able to talk to, to folks who have materials backgrounds where they're building product every day and they understand the inherent advantages that, that our technologies deliver. So, okay, and then there's, there's other... Um, things now to do as we're scaling. So now that we've we've got these strategic partners um, and we're going to market, now there's the opportunity to, you know, continue to to grow and bring in extra funding to to really take this to the next level of scale. So, who will be your customers? Will it be brands like Ralph Lauren and the likes? Yeah, that's that's right. So, you know, there are, and I'm not at liberty to talk about all the different products that we'll be taking to market. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about those on a timeline as we release them. But everything from clothing to bags and accessories to footwear, NFW is actively right now uh, making materials and then working on how we're going to market with a, a wide variety of of partners and uh, Ralph Lauren is just, you know, one of the first adopters um, and, a, and a major headline adopter of the materials. The other thing that we're, we're doing is there are some products that NFW can make where we can not just make the material, but we can make the entire product. And so there will be opportunities to be even more direct in front of consumers um, in the future. But we're, we're starting with, building our ingredient brands of Claris and, and Miram with iconic partners that, you know, everybody knows and loves their stuff. We're starting there first. So Miram is a leather-like and Claris is a textile-like product? Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's basically right. Claris 
you know, we, we talk, I mentioned earlier recycling cotton, but the technology applies to things like hemp. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of folks who say, well, it'd be better if we could grow and use industrial hemp instead of cotton, except that, guess what? The same, the, the problem, the problem with the industrial hemp, when you, when you try to cottonize it, it's very similar to that recycled cotton problem I talked about earlier, which is the fiber is a little too short mm-hmm. in order for that to perform. But NSW, the Claris sort of side of things solves those problems. So we're going to market with performance textiles that are you know, natural inputs that can whip moisture more quickly and, and dry and be more abrasion resistant than uh, those naturals have been ever been before. And that can make it outcompete the plastics in terms of the overall performance envelope and, and sustainability. And then what we're working on on the Miram leather side is for those people who have a need for leather-like materials um, for a variety of applications. You know, it, it's interesting just to note that leather, the leather that you have maybe on the interior of your car is quite different than the leather that might be your wallet or your bag. And so our technology is really, really tunable. So we can tune for, for a variety of things that different customers want or even go beyond. There's, there's some folks that's, that have said they want custom aesthetics or even, um, you know, unique smells and things like that, that we can put into the materials that, that let people have a different and a better experience with the product than they've been able to have before. They've always been limited by some of the plastic um, and, and other incumbent materials that are in market. Mm. Well, in about a half a minute that we have left here, if folks want to learn more and or continue the conversation, Luke, how might they reach you? Yeah, so naturalfiberwelding.com has a website full of information. And then there's, there's also made with Claris and made with Miram.com. If you go to the naturalfiberwelding.com website, there's a contact us part of the, of the webpage. And so we have both myself, but a number of other people in the company that anyway, handle questions and customer inquiries and things like that. And, or just general uh, questions people have about the technology where they want to learn and understand. We, we really view ourselves as not just a solution, you know, that's better for the world, so to speak, but we want to be information. We want to provide people the information they need to make good decisions. So we'd, we'd love to, to talk with folks about that. Very exciting stuff. And really appreciate you being our guest on Heartstock. Carol, thank you so much. The, the pleasure is truly mine. Thank you for what you do. Mm. So we shall see you next week. Uh, thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, No trespassing. But on me